welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We are coming to a section of the book of Revelation. We are going through the book of Revelation. We're coming to a section in which God's justice begins to really come to bear. We have watched the Lord tolerate and put up with an amazing amount of evil. But he will not do so forever. And we are seeing now the shift take place and where God is going to bring justice. Now this justice of God is, is quite an awesome thing. And it's not something that the American culture is, is at ease with. Uh, in fact, justice is a tough thing for us. Uh, we, we talk a good deal about uh, the mercy of God and the patience of God, and it, those are all very much there. But when it comes to the justice of God, it's, that's a little hard for us. But we're going to look at it, and then we're going we're to apply it to ourselves and say, why does God want us to know this enormous judgment that he will bring at the end? Why does he want us to know these things? What difference does it make in our lives? And we'll apply it to ourselves in just a moment. Heavenly Father, open your word, we ask. We love your word. It is a precious gift from heaven. We are not here on the planet without, without light, but you have given us your word, and so we would understand it, and we would have it applied to our hearts today. Give me grace to speak it faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. After giving those on earth one last opportunity to repent, that would be the first part of chapter 14, an announcement is made in heaven that the moment has arrived for the earth to experience unrestrained justice. In this passage, we see justice being given to the Antichrist's armies who have massed to destroy Israel. Like a man crushing grapes in a wine press, Jesus will crush this army. We have become so accustomed to focusing on God's mercy and patience that it's almost awkward to think of him bringing justice on those who reject him. But there's no escaping this fact. God is just as certainly as he is merciful. And the day will come when those who refuse his mercy will be forced to endure his justice. If we recognize the reality he's trying to show us in this portion of the book of Revelation, that insight will strengthen us when we face persecution, change the way we react to others, free our hearts from the need to harbor anger, restore our dignity, and stir us to be thankful for his amazing mercy. Revelation 14, I'll begin at verse 14. We saw an angel flying over mid-heaven and crying out to the earth, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And this announcement is made. Another angel flies over and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. They're great. And, and this announcement is made that the Antichrist's kingdom is at an end. And then, then a third angel goes overhead and de describes hell in really the most vivid terms. And it's just unnerving and says, Anyone who takes the mark of the beast or worships his image, this is where you're headed. That is actually God's mercy at work. God is mercifully announcing to the earth, repent, because the end is really drawing near now. God is forcing people into one of two camps. Uh, this is his mercy. I think this is why he allows the Antichrist to do what he does, is people are being driven out of that lukewarm middle zone, off the fence, as it were, to either worship the image of the Antichrist or be willing to die for your Lord. That's basically your choice in this season. And the reason God is doing it is because he's taking the earth like a wet towel and wringing out every soul he can get. Anyone who's willing to stand for Christ is being given an opportunity to make clear declaration and be with him. So he's, he will not leave the earth with anyone undecided. By the time things end... Uh, the decisions will have been really driven into one camp or another. Now we pick up today and we begin to see a remarkable prophetic symbol. And I'm going to show you in a minute that it goes way back to the 8th century BC. That, that what John is picking up right now, the scene he's seeing has been shown to prophets 
since the 8th century BC. And he's telling us that this is where it will take place. Chapter 14, verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Having a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. All right, now who do you think that one like a son of man is? Jesus. They would not use that phrase for anyone else. It's right straight out of the book of Daniel. And so we're talking about Jesus. Notice he's sitting. He's not in a hurry. He's, he's, he is waiting patiently, but just above the earth, as it were, waiting for the command from the Father to, to return and to bring the judgment of God. So there he sits, his crown, and he has in his hand a pruning knife, a, a sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. You recall Jesus said, no man knows the hour when I'm going to return, but the father does. It's set in his heart and he, I'll receive a command from him. Well, this is what you're seeing right now. The command is being given. An angel comes and announces it out loud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour has come. Verse 16, then he who sat on the cloud, this is Jesus, swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. This is a, it's a prophetic symbol. He takes that, that, that pruning knife, that sickle, and swings it over the earth as though he's cutting a clump of grapes off a branch. And he swings it over and makes that gesture. Then another angel, verse 17, came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. What's, what's he doing? I'll tell you in a moment. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire. Uh, we have seen fire poured out on the earth earlier. Came out from the altar, be the altar of incense. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster from the grapes of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Jesus makes this prophetic gesture over the earth. It is to be cut. It is time to take the, the grapes, as it were, and put them in the wine press where they will be trodden. And so he makes this gesture. But an angel with another sickle sets about doing the work. You say, what's he doing? This is exactly what Jesus teaches in his parables, and, and he always has angels coming and doing the work. There's two at the mill, two in the field, one is taken, the other, and it's always an angel who gathers up and does this work. So the angels will be carrying this out. Jesus prophetically symbolizes it. The angels carry it out. The angel that is coming out from the altar of incense, who recalls what the altar of incense represented? prayer, the prayers of God's people. So God has heard the prayers of his people and the angel comes out from there and you recall he took fire from this altar of incense which was the little table in front of the curtain before the Holy of Holies and he took that coals and he poured them out on the earth. So this is the same angel that he did that before. So he comes out and he makes the announcement, it is time, <clears throat> put in the sickle and gather the clusters. God has heard the prayers of his people and is going to now bring justice. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Now, hang on, but this is enormously vivid, but it's, here's what's going to happen. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. I'll show you later. That's Jerusalem. And, the, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles. That would be about four feet for a distance of 200 miles. What a grotesque picture. What, what is he telling us? What is, what is going on here? I want to show you um, what's taking place because as I said, this is an ancient prophecy. Let me first of all describe what is justice because we're seeing God's justice being brought to bear. Justice is giving people exactly what they deserve. Would you say that? All right, I'm going to repeat it, and then let's try that again. <clears throat> Giving people exactly what they deserve. Yeah. How many are glad that God isn't going to give you justice? Yeah. You don't want it. You don't want justice. You want mercy. Amen? 
Amen. Well, we will be given actually a measure of justice in certain areas, but not for our sin. And how, how as, as we get into this, and as we're in this portion of Revelation, you are going to have more and more gratitude for the mercy of God, and that you are not going to face his justice, because it is very real, and it is a terrible thing. I want to show you the justice that's being given here. Chapter 16, verse, verse 5. What's going on? First of all, you need to know this isn't the whole earth that's getting dropped into this wine press, all of the people. It is the Antichrist's armies. Uh, he is the uh, emperor now of the entire planet, uh, and he has, he has troops from all over, the, oh, certainly the surrounding nations and area, and they have converged on Israel. Um, and God is about to take these grapes, as it were, put them in a wine press, and crush them. And I'll show you how he does that in a minute. Verse 5, I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Notice this, they are getting exactly what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, almighty and true and righteous are your judgments. There are other verses, but I won't read them. Blood for blood. They have been, Antichrist has been at this point, undergoing an, 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 a genocide of believers, um, at which Jesus said, if he, if he were allowed to continue it, there would be no living believers left on the planet. So it is an appalling massacre that's going on around the earth. Everyone without the mark is now a fugitive and is being hunted down and killed. So they are spilling the blood of God's people. God has been, has patiently allowed it while salvation was taking place, but his justice now will come and it is blood for blood. And we're going to see the Antichrist and his, his kingdom being given just what they deserve. Let me describe the wine press a minute. The vision John sees is drawn right out of the prophecies of Isaiah, Joel, and Zechariah. As far back as the 8th century BC, God revealed through his prophets that a day would come when he would gather the armies of hostile nations and destroy them in one remarkable event. Turn with me to Joel chapter 3. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Hosea, Joel, Amos. So if you find any of those, you're... You're near. The way I learned all of these is my wife came up with the fact that you can put the books of the Old Testament to the tune, she'll be coming around the mountain. Yeah. I, when I taught at the Bible college, I, I, would, I would say to my, some of my courses, I'd say, all right, now I'll tell you one of the questions on the final. It's in, absolutely, you must give me all the books of the Bible in order. Somebody always go, in order? Yes, in order. <laughs> And I said, now, you don't have to sing along with me, but every morning I will sing this song. And I would suggest it would help your grade, because I will put some serious weight on this, that you would sing with me. And so it goes like this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehemiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Well... I will confess to you, I still am humming strains of she'll be coming around the mountain when I'm in the Minor Prophets. <laughs> okay, got it. And usually any of my former students do the same. <laughs> so it works, you could try that. All right, well, we're in Joel. How did they, uh, where was we? Back with, the, yes, the justice of God in the wine press. Um, look at this. This was, Joel was written about 800 B.C., and here, look, listen to these words. This prophecy is describing this time. For behold, in those days, that was to be the end of time, at that time when I restore fortunes, the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means the valley where Yahweh judges. 
And then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom I have, who they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Now let your eye go down to verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. God is commanding that, a, that the nations now be gathered together for a war against Israel. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near and let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You've heard it said in the reverse as a, a description of the time of peace. But here God says, tell the nations, all of these nations that hate my people, come on, prepare for war and beat your plowshares into swords. Let the weak man say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. And then... It says, verse 12, let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley where Yahweh judges. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, verse 13 is exactly what I just read to you from chapter 14 of the book of Revelation. Do you see this? Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This is where it's drawn from. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Then it describes more of the last day's things where the sun and the moon grow dark. Now turn back to Isaiah. I just want to show you one more. I have another one there, but I won't take you there just in the interest of time. Isaiah 53. No, forgive me. 63. You have a picture of... The Messiah coming from the east, from Jordan, which is called here Edom, wearing a robe which is stained red. And the question is, who is this who comes from Eden with their garments of glowing colors from Basra, the capital of Eden, and this one who is majestic in his appearance? And it says, it is I, the Lord, who's speaking, in right, righteousness, righteous and mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garment's like the one who treads in the winepress. Now, you all know what a winepress is, right? It's that round thing in ancient times. It would have been a, a barrel-like thing uh, with slats or holes in it. And you would get in this and you, with your feet, crush the grapes. And in this case, you've got those robes and they probably would try to keep them up. But the picture is that the hem of the robe is stained red uh, from, the, from the red wine, from the, from the juice. I have trodden, verse 3, I have trodden the wine trough alone, says God. In other words, God's going to do this, this brutal work by himself. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them with my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. And for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their life blood on the earth. Who is this that's going to do it? I'll show you. Revelation chapter 19. This section of 19, the last portion 11 on, is describing this wine press that we just saw the prophecy of swing your sickle over the earth, take the, the grapes of the earth and throw them into the winepress of the wrath of God. Now we're going to see how that takes place here. Verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. So here comes Jesus. And it says that his eyes are a flame of fire and he has diadems on his head. Those, those little ribbons like Alexander the Great, uh, like a crown. He has name written on him, which no one knows. And he is clothed with a robe. And tell me what it says next. Dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which follow him are in fine, clean, white linen. But he is splashed. His robe is splashed red. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike the nations. In other words, all he does is speak a word and he brings their destruction. He doesn't have to do anything. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And what's the next phrase? He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. 
All right, who is it who comes from Basra with his robes glowing red? Who is it who is trodden the winepress of these peoples? He says, how's he going to do it? I'll show you. Revelation chapter 16. Some of you may not want to know. Chapter 16, verse 16. Here it is. And they gathered them, these armies. This is an army, remember, we're dealing with. The armies from the Antichrist's empire. They have gathered them. In fact, the Euphrates was dried up so they could cross over. And you could have everyone here. It's an enormous army. You can only imagine the size of it, given the description of what John just saw of the blood. So this enormous army gathers, uh, and it's been called, uh, God has called them to, uh, to attack Israel because he's going to finish them off. And they gather them together in a place in which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Har means hill of or tell of. It's, the, it's this where cities, ancient cities grew up. There was a mound. It would build up into a hill. There's a city of Megiddo. It's right at the end of the plain of Jezreel and the other part of the plain of Esdraelon or whatever, Esdraelon. And it will, it, it's there. And it was the scene of many ancient battles. It's on the north-south route from Egypt to Syria. It's right at the edge, north edge of the Carmel Range. It's very strategically located. And battles with Egypt and Israel have had been there and uh, other armies, Babylonian, everything. They've watched huge fights. The thing has been sacked, I don't know how many times. And so at that city, it says, I'm gathering them. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And let your eye go down to verse 21. Now, what is it that's going to tread these grapes? And huge hailstones, about how heavy? A hundred pounds each came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail. And it's, it was extremely severe. The Lord, it is coming. is just going to speak the word. The army will be massed. And hailstones a hundred pounds each will... He has gathered these things into the valley of judgment, and he will crush the army... And it says, with hailstones, literally, it is literally a crushing like a wine press. It isn't simply figurative language. It is just like a wine press. And he will crush out these armies. And it says, there will be death for 200 miles around. Wow. Why don't you say, wow? wow. You say, does God do this stuff? I mean, see, the, the mercy of God is absolutely part of his nature. But so is the justice of God. And as we, the more we see the justice of God, the more grateful we become for his love and his mercy. This is not a bluff. It's not a game. This is, it's a, it, we're going to get into this thing and you're going to see realities that are there and you're going to realize how, how profoundly you have been saved. It's, it's a great thing. What is God saying to his church? Why does he want us to know this? Why do we need to know this? He's told us this in such detail. Though he has allowed us to suffer in order to save souls, he has been patiently waiting and, and let his church suffer and be persecuted and be killed. And in the final years, persecution will become even more severe. This does not mean that he has forgotten us or with, will withhold ju the justice we are due forever. Blood for blood. They've spilled ours and God will give it back. His justice is certain. It is surely coming, though believers have been waiting for thousands of years. Peter tells us, God is not slow concerning his promises, but he is patient. A day is, is a thousand years. A thousand years is a day to God, but he's waiting for a particular situation, and when it comes, he will act. What is he waiting for? Last soul to come in. Yeah, he's, this is God's patience as he harvests the earth in the positive light of bringing every soul into his storehouse who will come. His justice is also complete. No one will escape his justice. He will return evil for evil and ratify a person's choice to be away from his presence. It is a horrible and a sobering prospect. And um, I, I guess I'll take you there. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me, Paul 
describes the judgment of God as it comes. And he says that this is the just thing. It's the right thing for God to do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll start there about verse 4. Therefore, Paul says, speaking to Thessalonica, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. God has allowed you to suffer. It is an honorable thing. But, after, but, but it, God won't leave it there. After all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. It's only what? Just. just. We're dealing with justice. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us who are well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution giving people what they deserve to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I would say that would be about the best description of hell right there. You don't have to go into a lot of details. That says it there, simply away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Paul says it is only just. When God comes, the, the time of mercy and patience will be at an end. And he will indeed give justice, blood for blood, to those who have hurt you, he says. Now, I want to have a perspective briefly on justice. There is justice now, and there is justice in the future. Let's talk about now. Many offenses are overlooked in order to give people time to mature and repent. You ever hear people say, where's God? Why doesn't he act? What's he waiting for? Why doesn't he deal with that? Where's the justice? It is withheld. We're told that. God is withholding much justice. Enormous amount of evil goes on that is not requited. It is not paid back for what it is. Don't you see that? We see evil all the time. We see stuff going on. And you say, when is he going to act? Why is he going to let this go on? Drives you nuts in a sense. You want more of his justice to swing in. What is he waiting for? He'll, he is waiting for people to, to, to mature, grow up, change their mind, repent. He's giving people time to repent. And so much judgment is held back in this season we live in. And you and I have also benefited from that, have we not? So we say, thank you, Lord. Yes. All right. However... Some offenses rise to a level of evil that God must oppose now. Even in this era of human history, there are things that cross a threshold where God must act, and he does. And you see his fierce judgment, his justice come in, and it's awesome. I want to just use one example that came to my mind. We had our convention, our Foursquare convention, in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was my first time there. And we, one of the things that I remember the most is the Lincoln Memorial. And Mary and I went to the Lincoln Memorial. How many have been to the Lincoln Memorial? And, okay, most of you have. Praise God. Well, if you recall, on one side, they have his Gettysburg Address in great, huge print up on the wall. And on the other side, they have his second inaugural address. Well, I, I don't know, I, I guess I'd never read it or something, but I just stood there reading the second inaugural, and it stunned me. What a, what a remarkable statement. And, and I wanted to read you some of that. Lincoln was truly a prophet and a poet. I mean, in his use of words, he is, he's, a, he's brilliant. His entire second inaugural address is that long. You know, would that that took place now, huh? He could say more in that space of time than we can now in hours of, of chatter. Uh, the nation has gone through a, and is still in a terrible war. It is beginning to wind down. He says in here, I'm not going to say a lot because you already know what I think. I know what you think. 
we don't need to have a lot of talk. He is, uh, he begins to, he reflects in here on the cause of the war. And he begins to talk to America and like a prophet begins to say, I want you to know why we're in this. And who remembers how many people died in the Civil War? It was a half a million. So many more than any other war America's ever fought that it's not even in the same league. You can't even measure. Vietnam was 50-some thousand. Half a million, 500,000 died in the Civil War. It's an appalling war. Listen to this. He says one side of the Confederate states were willing to go to war to dissolve the Union. The northern states were willing to go to war to preserve the Union. And then he begins to talk about what the war is really about. Listen to this. One-eighth of the whole population were slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. What he means is people were making money, big money, by taking people uh, and, 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 and subjecting them to forced labor without pay. It was a profitable business and they weren't about to give it up, is what he just said. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war. See, people were arguing, was it states' rights and all kinds of nonsense? And Lincoln says right here, baloney, we're fighting over slavery. Call it what it is. And he says, to strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the union. He says, the southern states were willing to break our union so they could preserve and extend the practice of slavery. That's what this is about. Which, while the government, he said the United States government, and he's kind of saying this isn't any high moral ground, claimed no right to do more than restrict the territorial enlargement. We were just saying you can't spread it any farther, but you can keep it. Which he will go on to prove that he, he thought, thought was, a, was the wrong attitude. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or duration which it has already attained. How many died? Yeah, they were just, I mean, there are orphans and there are widows everywhere. It, the nation is just devastated. He said, none of us thought this would happen. Neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with, or even before the conflict itself should cease. No one thought that this would bring an end to slavery. Each looked for an easier triumph, or, or thought that that's what we would do to end it. Each looked for an, a, a simpler way out. No one had the guts to deal with the real cause, is what he just said. The result Less, and a result less fundamental and astounding. We, we were all looking for a cheap way out of this. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. He says... How would you go and ask a just God to protect you and help you while you exploited human beings and refused to pay them and treated them badly? He said, and then he says, but let us not judge that we be not judged. Too late. <laughs> the prayers of both could not be answered. Woe unto that world because of offenses, for it needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, if God allowed this horrible thing to come, and if there was a season, he's going to say, where we could have repented of it and backed away from it and not had this fierce judgment fall on us, we missed our opportunity. He now wills to remove that he gives to both north and south. Lincoln says God is judging north and south. This terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Dare we say to God that this is unrighteous, what he's done, that he had no right to bring such justice on America for our sin. 
And he says, no, we have no right. He is a just and a holy God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue, listen carefully, until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. If God wants this war to go until every penny that has been wrung out of the lives of slaves be paid back in this brutal war, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. If God will beat us with swords, who lashed others with whips? As it was said 3,000 years ago, so it must still be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then he goes on with malice toward none and charity toward, for all. With the firmness and the right as God gives us the right to see, let us strive on to finish the work we are in and bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Isn't that amazing? At his second inaugural, Lincoln stood up and said, let's face what we're talking about, why we've had this war. It was over slavery. And neither one of us had the moral character to get rid of it. And for 250 years, we have exploited and abused and mistreated people. And a just and a righteous God is wringing from us the justice for what we've done. Isn't that amazing? Is the justice of God, as I was saying, do things in this season reach a certain plane where God says, enough, and he brings his justice? Yes. We've seen it in our civil war. We've seen it other places as well. And that's what you're seeing at the end of time. You're seeing in that last season in the book of Revelation, the justice of God. It is not out of his character. This is not unlike him. This is part of who he is which makes what we receive of mercy all the more sweet. Now, I'll just quickly go through some application. Why does God want us to know that he is just? Number one, it strengthens us to stand in hard times. Revelation there has this picture, shows, shows this, horror, this remarkable picture of hell and says this, is, this strengthens believers. Yes, it does, doesn't it? When you realize the judgment, when you realize the fierce justice of God, even though you're suffering, it, you, you hang on and struggle because you want to stand in his grace. Number two, it moves us to pray for those who offend us, hoping that they will repent before they face his judgment. Those who do the most horrible things, you cannot wish they would go to hell. Not if you believe in hell, not if you understand what it is. If you realize... It is there, heaven is there, that these realities of the afterlife are very real. They are horrible and they are wonderful. How can you wish anyone to perish forever away from the presence of God in hell? And so it causes me, Paul says it, I, I won't take you there, but it's in Romans 12, the reference you have in your text. He says, don't anyone seek vengeance don't anyone seek revenge. Return good for evil. Why? Because vengeance is mine, saith God. I will repay. He says, folks, you don't need to handle your own vengeance. If that person does not genuinely, sincerely, and there's no fool in God, repent from the heart. They face a vengeance that you could never apply. Have pity on them. Have mercy on them. May it move your heart to compassion and to patience. That's why Jesus says, let they slap your cheek, give them the other. If they, if they demand you carry their baggage a mile, carry it too. Don't get into an offense over your personal pride. Realize what's at stake. Their soul is at stake. Their eternity is at stake. And do all in your power to see that they come to Christ. It changes the way we feel about people. Number three, it restores the dignity of those who have been dehumanized. 
Many will suffer. Many are suffering this day as we speak. They are dying in jails. They are, they are beaten. They have had their homes and, and families taken away from them. They are degraded because of their love of Jesus Christ. But the justice of God will lift up his people. In Revelation chapter 20, when, it, the, when the millennium is described and the resurrection there's a strange reference, but if you see it in this context that I'm giving you today, you see why he said it. It says, John says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and who had not taken the mark of the beast. And I see, saw them resurrected and I saw them rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Does that mean the rest of us aren't there? No, we're all there. All believers are there. But why does John see those? Because they were so brutally treated. They were degraded and dehumanized. And so God particularly says to them, you'll sit with me, sweetheart, on your throne. You may have been treated like this, but I will show the world how I love you. It humanizes. It dignifies the justice of God. He will not allow that mistreatment to go on forever. It creates hope that we won't have to live with evil forever. Won't it be a relief? I mean, as much as we want to be part of this process of saving souls and being on this earth, won't it be a relief to no longer have violence and filth and, and all that we live in? Won't it be a wonderful time? There's a place waiting for us. The justice of God has seen it. And the only way to have it is to take those who want this filth and want this violence and who refuse to serve and humble themselves before God to take them away. Because he honors people's freedom. You choose that, you get it. And he takes them away. But he makes a place for those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, and those who are gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and are merciful, who are pure in heart and are peacemakers, and have been persecuted for righteousness. God has a place where he blesses them because of his justice. And finally, it stirs believers to be thankful for his mercy and to live for him. 2 Thessalonians 5, I mean, 2 Corinthians 5 says, He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. When we see what Jesus did for us, it makes us live no longer for ourselves. How can you realize that he took you out of hell? He took you out of the justice of God, everything you deserved, and has given you an eternity, and has created, called you as clean and pure as his own son, and will seat you with him in heavenly places, how can you do anything but live for him? How can you just take and say, I want to get saved, but don't want God to intrude into my daily life? I don't want God to intrude into my family. I don't want God to intrude into my finances. I don't want God to intrude into my, my, my vacations. It doesn't make sense, does it? No, the more you see the justice of God and the more you realize what he has done for us, the more it says, Paul says, in view of his mercies, my only response is to offer myself a living sacrifice back to him. When you see it, when you get it, you give him all. For God has not destined us for wrath. The wrath of God won't fall on you. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not destined us for wrath. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Praise God. Would you stand with me? Earlier we sang the song, the battle hymn of the republic. Remember how it goes? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. The author, is it Catherine Lee Bates? It was written during the Civil War. And she was saying that this war is a just war. And it's a war in which God is bringing his justice. He's trampling out the vintage. See, he doesn't just do it at the end. There's times that he will do it now. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. He is cutting us down for the sin that we have committed. I have, see, he's, 
I've seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening, dews and damps. This is a holy thing. It's a brutal thing. It's a just thing, though. It is the work of God that is stopping this horrible plague of slavery in our land. Her last line, what is it? They, they have, in the beauty of the lilies, he's the lily of the valley, Christ was born across the sea by the pilgrims and by our forefathers who brought it to this land. He is born across the sea. In, who, he transfigured, what is it? We got it up here? With a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. When we see him, we're, tra- we're raised from glory to glory as we worship him. As he died to make men holy, let us live to make men what? Free. Yeah, and he was talking about, she was talking about the freeing the slaves. Freeing people from the horrible bondage. He is a just God. Say hallelujah. It's a good thing that he's a just God. It's a terrible thing. It's, a, it's an awesome thing to watch. It's just, it's, it's a sobering thing. But it is the heart of our, our true and living God. And he wouldn't be a loving God. He wouldn't be a pure God. He wouldn't be who he is were he not a just God. But he's also a merciful God. And he gives mercy to those who will repent and those who will turn to him. In fact, he'll patiently wait for the last one. No one hates. No one hates to administer justice more than he does. But he will do it. Let me ask this question. Is anyone today, I didn't preach this to somehow frighten you. But if you have listened and you do not know Jesus Christ, you might feel motivated right now to say, I would sure like to have his mercy. I would like to give my life to Christ. What you do, there's two essential steps. One is you repent, meaning you're no longer independent, self-willed, rebellious to him. The Bible becomes the guidebook for your life. You submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You'll follow him the rest of your life. And two, you will embrace the cross of Christ, that he died for your sins, and you will trust that he has given you his, his righteousness and washed your sin away by his work on the cross. And you'll believe that to the last breath in your body. But it's a decision you must make. It's a, it's, a, it's a step you must take. I just want to ask right now, is there anybody who says, Pastor, I want to pray, and I want to repent, and I want to give my life to Christ right now in response to this. I want his mercy. If you do, I'll have the whole congregation. We'll just pray right now and pray that prayer. So raise your hand if anyone's here and says, Pastor, I want to pray that prayer. I want to make sure that I have the mercy of God, not his justice. Is there someone? Praise God. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? This, I don't mean to just rush this. This is very important. This is really the most important thing we're doing today. Anyone else? You say, I'm going to pray with you, Pastor. And I'm going to praise God. Thank you. Glad I waited. This is why the Lord waits. Anyone else? You're going to pray with me and give your life to Jesus Christ right now. Anyone else? All right. Let's pray together, church. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. I acknowledge today, if you were to give me your justice, if I were to get what I deserve, I would perish. I would be away from you forever. But I know you to be a merciful God, a God of love who has sent your only begotten Son to die for me, that I might be with you forever. With all my heart, I receive your precious gift. I thank you for sending Jesus. He died for me on the cross. He paid for my sins there. Washed every one of them away. I believe that. I will believe that to the last breath in my body. It is the righteousness of Jesus, not mine, that will open the door to heaven to me. I praise the Lord 
for his wonderful gift. I repent of my independence, of my self-reliance, of living for myself. I bury that today. And I choose this day to live obediently, humbly, submissively to the leading of God. I am a child of God. He loves me dearly. I can trust Him with abandon. So today, Lord, I put my hand in yours and I will follow you wherever you lead me. You no longer have a rebellious child. You have a child that loves you and trusts you and wants to please you. And all I do, I have repented. I have believed. And I receive now the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell deep inside of me. Never leave me, Holy Spirit. It is you who will change me. You who will make me like Christ. You who will protect me all the days of my life. Welcome in forever. In Jesus' mighty name I pray it. Amen. If you prayed with me, if you raised your hand or did not, but you would like it, we have a packet we would like to give you at the Welcome Center. It has a Bible. It has, a, I think, a DVD or a tape from me. It has just some other materials. It's all free. Just go to the thing and say, I, I prayed with the pastor today, and we'd love to give that to you to just get you started. And what is the next step in my mind? Be baptized, water baptized. Um, I don't know when the next baptismal is coming up. Is it? Next, next Sunday night. Oh, how timely. <laughs> that God has that appointment. If you have not been water baptized, you need to be water baptized. It was the, if you say Jesus is your Lord, that's his first commandment to you. Be baptized. So do what he tells you. There you go. All right. So you come at 530 with a change of clothes and meet me right in those double glass doors in there. Well, I'll, I'll coach you in there. and That'll be a week from this week from today on Sunday night. 5.30, and we'll baptize you, and you can make that declaration of dying and rising with Christ and, and, and obey Him. Amen? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord get, make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.